Well, I presume if you've been with us, then you know you'll need a Bible. And so please take your Bible and open it to the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John. This is a fantastic book that just helps us to see Jesus for who he is. There's many different ways to preach through a book. Uh, one could just do it uh, a couple of verses every week. I think we'd be here to 2030 if we took that approach. So I've taken more of a, a large chunk uh, each time we gather together. And I, I like the value of just reading those scriptures, commenting on them, so you get to hear Jesus specifically what he says, rather than me or someone else telling you what he is saying. So what we're going to do today is look at John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, and if the Lord wills, we'll actually complete this whole chapter today. It has been said that John chapter 8 is the tale of two sinners. If you think about it, there's two different types of sinners that we see in the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament. There is one type of sinner that is just obvious. They are the rule breaker. If, if a law is placed before them, they run right through it and just shatter it. And so that's what we see in the first 11 verses of John chapter 8, where you have this woman caught in adultery. There's something about this first type of sinner, however, as we read in the, the accounts of Jesus, that these appear to be most receptive to Jesus and the mercy and the grace that is extended. There is a second type of sinner also, and it's what we see in verses 12 through 59 of John 8, and this is the rule follower. This is the religious person that likely is regular in worship attendance, is present with the scriptures in their hand, and they know a lot of the truths. And when the Savior comes, they are like, why would I need him? Because I'm, I'm good on my own, and I am come from Abraham's stock, his lineage, and I don't need to be forgiven of my sin. So one is a rule breaker, one is a rule follower, but they are both sinners. I think you can see these in full display in the prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son, right? There's the young son that wants to cash in his inheritance, and he goes out and lives in scandalous living, comes to the end of himself, and receives the forgiveness that is granted by his loving father. But what about his older brother, the one that was present and has been diligent to work? He doesn't see a need to be forgiven, and he is resentful towards his dad. I'm wondering if you're a mom or dad, I wonder if you could determine with your, your own kids who the, the rule breaker sinner is in your, in your kids and who the rule follower sinner is in your, in your family. I think I could do that. But the point is, that's what we have here in the tale of two sinners. Let me just again set a little historical context. According to John chapter 7, verse 2, this is during the Feast of the Booths. And this is a wonderful feast that helped the people of this time remember how God was faithful to provide for his people thousands of years earlier when they were in wandering in the desert. There were two primary events that took place during this feast. 
The first was to remember how God brought water from a rock. Every day, a priest would go down during this week-long festival and with a golden pitcher, scoop down into the pool of Siloam with some water, walk up to the temple, and pour out that water over an altar onto some rocks. And this helped the people remember God provided water from rock. He is faithful to take care of his people. And you might remember uh, two Sundays ago that Jesus used that event on the last day of the feast to be able to say, come to me and I'll give you living water. But there was a second event that also took place during that feast, not with water, but with light. There in the temple were four massive candlesticks that were 75 feet tall and made of gold. And in the evening, they would be lit. And for all around the community there in Jerusalem, as they would stay in these booths or these tents, the moms and dads would be able to look to where the temple was and see a great glow. And they would say to their kids, you see that? That helps us to remember that God led our people with a a pillar of fire in the evening. And they would speak of how God was light. Well, the context here is after that festival, we presume, that, that now the lights are being taken down. We know about this during Christmas time, don't we? We're bringing the lights down, and as they are doing that, Jesus is in the temple, and he offers up what we see here in John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus said to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, if you're keeping score in chapters 6, 7, and 8, there's been this reference back to Moses and his wanderings in the desert. In John 6, Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life, remembering the manna that fell from heaven. In John 7, he identifies himself as the living water. We're reminded of the water that came from the rock. Now in John 8, he is identifying himself as the guiding light. All of these are finding their fulfillment in Jesus. It's very intentional when he identifies himself with the first two words, I am. Many of you know this. He's tracing his identity back to the third chapter of Exodus through the burning bush when God identified himself to Moses as I am who I am. So by using those two words, Jesus is identifying himself as God. He says, I am the light. And unlike these great large candlesticks that were 75 feet tall that would need to continually be replenished with oil, Jesus is saying, I am that one light that will never need to be replenished. I am the only light. I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me through trust and submission will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And you could say that John chapter 8 is an example of the light shining into men and women's hearts. In the first 11 verses, that's what we had there with a woman caught in adultery, and she received that light. She got saved of her sins. But unfortunately, in the verses that follow, the same light is going to be shown into that second type of sinner, and we're going to see a different response. So let's just begin now of this, I'll call it a great conflict, 
a great argument that takes place here in John 8. Verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, if you've been with us through this study through John, you know that in the end of John 5, Jesus gave a whole talk of how four different elements uh, bear witness of him. One uh, was John the Baptist. Two was the, the miraculous signs. Three was God the Father. And four was the Scriptures. The same argument is now coming up in verse 13. They're like, hey, who's, who's here to prove, who's here to bear witness that you are really God? Verse 14, Jesus answered, If I do not bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. You judge according to external or human standards. But I judge no one. And so the context here is Jesus is saying, I'm in the light. I have come to save people from their sins. Now we'll find in other places in the scripture that he will indeed judge men and women. But the context here is he's saying, I don't judge the same way that you judge, verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. In the scriptures, there was a need to have two witnesses that would substantiate a charge. Jesus is saying, I'm going to bear witness, and my Father is going to bear witness. It's interesting, isn't it? This metaphor of light. Does light need to bear witness of itself? If you've ever flown in an airplane at night and you look down and you see the twinkles of lights, maybe in a village, a city, or even like a old farmhouse, that light does not need to say, I am light, Right? It just shows that it is light. I think that's the argument that Jesus is saying here. Verse 19. They said to him, therefore, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. You know me. You would know my father also. Verse 20. These words he spoke to them in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. A very interesting, uh, ironic thought here. Here in the treasury is where these words are spoken in the temple. The treasury would have had 13 offering boxes, each of them shaped like a trumpet. And it is in this treasury where God is offering his own offering to the people in Jesus, who has come to save them from their sins. But the people are rejecting God's offering. It says there in verse 21, So he said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 22, So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Since he says, Where I'm going, you cannot come. In Jewish thought at this time, there was a deep, dark, the hottest place in hell was reserved for the person that committed suicide. And so as they're hearing Jesus say this, one of the most insulting things they can say to him is that 
you, you must be ready to, to kill yourself because you're going to go to the deepest, darkest, hottest place in hell. Verse 23, and he said to them, you are from below, I'm from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Can I read that again for you? Verse 24, and think about the pluralistic world that we live in and how bold this thought is. Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am God, that I am the light of the world, you will die in your sins. It seems as if our culture would say that real faith is like a mountain. It doesn't really matter what trail or what path you scale in order to get to God at the top of the mountain. You can take the north, south, east, west path, but eventually all paths will lead to God. It could be Buddha, it could be Islam, it could be Judaism. Just choose a path and be really sincere and you will eventually get to God. But when you compare that to what Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You see that the real metaphor would not be a mountain, but a narrow door. And the only way to get to God is through Jesus, the narrow door. Verse 25, so they said to him, well, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Verse 27, they did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. The light is shining these great truths to them, but the people here are in darkness. Verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Verse 28, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing in my own authority, but Jesus, but speak just as the Father has taught me. When Jesus is lifted up, there will be people who then understand who he is, who he was. And is that true? There were people, think of the man on the cross that was right next to Jesus as he was lifted up. It was at that moment where he realized, he doesn't deserve to be here. I deserve to be here. And his eyes were opened. He needed to be saved from his sins. Following Jesus' death, there was a centurion. And as he saw Jesus die, he said to himself in Mark 15, verse 39, truly this man was the Son of God. There were people at that time as Jesus was speaking that did not believe that Jesus was from God or that he was God, but after his death, resurrection, and ascension, they would. Think of the sermon that Peter preached in Acts 2. And then in verse 30 it says, And as he was saying these things, Many believed in him. Now, I need to qualify that word believe because there's a big difference between professing Christ and possessing Christ. You see, there are a lot of people in the crowd that day, evidently, that as he spoke about and said that I am a follower, or rather, I am from God, and I am God, I am the light of the world, they thought to themselves, yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I believe that. And I think the same is probably true in Green Bay and Alloway and the Pier and, and wherever our surrounding community is. 
If you ask a person who Jesus is, there's probably a lot that would say that Jesus is God or Jesus was the Son of God. But there's a difference between making that conclusion and actually placing your faith in him to save you of your sins and to live for him. So this is what he says there in verse 31. What is the qualifier? So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, here's the difference between a professor and a possessor, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You believe that I'm from God? You believe that I am God? Wonderful. You need to be forgiven of your sins. And the evidence that you've been born again and forgiven of your sins and received the grace of God is that the word of God abides in you. Then you'll truly be my disciple. In verse 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if one is truly possessing who Jesus is, they are constantly remaining and permeating in the word. They know the truth, and then they are set free. Verse 33, then they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. Who is it that you say you will become free? It's, a, it's almost laughable that these people in verse 33 says, We've never been a slave to anyone. Because if you know anything about the Israelite history, you know it's been one enslavement after another. It was the Egyptians, of which this whole Feast of the Booths is commemorating. After that, it was the Assyrians, and the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then at this time, it was the Romans. But Jesus is not here speaking of being enslaved to a, a national power, but the sin. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. As the light is sharing these words of truth with the people in the darkness, what he is saying to these Jews is, I'm going to allow you for a little bit longer to to be uh, hearing these words, but eventually as slaves, you're going to be moved out and the Gentiles are going to be adopted sons, and they are going to remain in the kingdom. Verse 36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And then in verse 39, they're going to start using Abraham, and Abraham is their way to God. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And that's a good person to use, I guess. In Isaiah 41, verse 8, Abraham is identified as a friend of God. And so they're saying, we're a part of the heritage of Abraham. But Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So here's a low blow. They're reminding of Jesus' birth. And there's a mystery behind who is the father of Jesus. And so they're bringing in this scandal. Well, the Holy Spirit is the one who, who, brought, who conceived Mary. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. 
For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Verse 43, why do you understand what I say? Rather, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus is saying, it's not Abraham who's your father, but the devil is your father. The devil was a murderer. He incited Cain to kill Abel and then lie about it. He does not stand on truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Wasn't it the serpent that said to Eve, you surely will not die in Genesis 3, 4. Verse 45, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I suspect when that question was asked, there was some silence. As he looked around, how many of you, which of you are convicting me of sin? No one would have been able to. If I tell the truth, why do you believe me? If I'm speaking the words of truth, why isn't there anyone that's listening to me? Verse 47, whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And then here's this final chunk, 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? By calling him a Samaritan, they were calling him a heretic and demon-possessed. 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as the prophets, yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And of course, Jesus here is speaking about eternal death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Some have asked, is he pointing to some specific verses here? Or was it just the overall life that Abraham had looking forward to the Savior that would come? I think it's certainly the second part. Verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so you have the words, I am again, that refer back to when Jesus identified himself as God, when God identified himself in the burning bush. What Jesus was doing was saying he was timeless, and there's only one person that's timeless, and that's God. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. These people in the beginning of John 8 picked up stones 
And at the end of John 8, picked up stones. But no one got to throw any stones in John 8. Let's just, now that we've done a survey, let me just hit a few points of this passage. The first thing I think we see here is the light of the world exposes sin. I think we would all agree with that. That's what light does, doesn't it? It goes into a dark room and it it shines. And we see that on display here in John 8. In the first 11 verses, the light of the world has come and he shines and there is a woman that is caught up in sin. She's been convicted of being in adultery. And it shines and she receives the forgiveness of sin that is granted to her. But then the light also shines to the second type of sinner, the religious one. And as that light shines, it is rejected. And we know a little bit about uh, rejecting light, don't we? I mean, how many of you this morning when you woke up with one hour less of sleep were rejoicing to see the light? I wasn't. But we can do it in a spiritual way as well. These religious leaders were coming to Jesus and they were offering up questions like, who is it that substantiates your claims that you are God? Who is your father? Who are you? And Jesus has answered these questions before. These are merely smoke screens. The rejection of Jesus is not due to a lack of evidence, but an unwillingness to believe and follow him. So the light of the world exposes sin. And then under that point, light is not always welcomed. Light is not always welcomed, is it? I can remember as a a naive young man. Some would say I'm now more more of a naive older man right now. But uh, when I got out of college, I moved to Green Bay. And uh, it was around the 4th of July and I was just new to the area and really had never spent any time in Door County. And I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go camping up there. And it was right around the 4th of July. I was like on a Friday night. And I loaded up my camping gear. And, you know, all the campgrounds were booked. <laughs> I, I couldn't figure that out. But I just would pass one right after the other, and they were all booked. And so then it got to be late, and I was way up near Gill's Rock. And I was like, I'm not driving back to Green Bay. I'm staying up here somewhere. And I had a little pickup truck that had a topper. And so I found a road off the main highway, and there was a little dirt road that went to a county park that only had use during the day. And I thought, what, what could be the harm of just pulling over here and setting up my sleeping bag and just sleeping in the back? There was no harm for the first three or four hours of that evening. And then about three or four in the morning, a bright light comes shining through that topper under my face. And the light was not welcomed at that moment, right? It was a a county deputy that had driven by and had saw my vehicle, and he says, what are you doing here? And I just explained to him, there was no place for me to camp. And he says, okay, well, you can stay here for a few more hours, but then you got to get out of here. Perhaps you can identify with that. Maybe you have children that it's, it's really difficult to wake them up, so you turn the light on. And that really irritates them. Well, the same can be true about the light of God. He has come, and not everyone was open to receiving him. Listen to what John 3, verses 19 through 21 says. And this is the judgment, 
That light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. As I've been thinking about the last part of John 8, probably many of us here like a good argument. We like a good debate, whether we see it in person or we see it online or something like that. Well, that's what you have here in John 8. And, and Jesus is so persistent to shine the light into the dark hearts of these Jewish leaders. And why is he doing that? Is he doing it to show how, how superior of a debater he is? Or is he doing it out of love to continue to show them you are just throwing up smoke screens. It's not really about that you don't want to follow me. You know what this is really about? It's your, it's your wicked heart. And that's what we see here. It's ironic, isn't it? In the first 11 verses of John 8, the, the obvious sinner is the one who receives forgiveness. And it's the one that spends all their times in church in Bible studies, it's those people that it says in the last part of John 8 that say they don't really don't, don't even need a Savior. And it's the ones, those are the ones that miss the grace and the mercy. Secondly, the light of the world leads to life. As the light shined in the heart of the woman caught in adultery, her spiritual death turns to light. It is painfully clear that she needed mercy and grace. It was offered to her, and she quickly snatched it up. But as the light uncovers sin, our need for the Savior becomes clear. It's a sad commentary, this last part of John 8. Here they are. The very scriptures that they read are being fulfilled in the person that is standing before them. And they say, I don't need this. I don't want this. But here's the great truth. Jesus has come as the light. He has come to reveal the sin, but not just to leave us in the sin. He has come to save us from the sin. I remember a time where I was fishing several years ago on one of the tributaries there of the Lake Michigan. And and as I was fishing, there was a few guys to my right and left, and we were in waders. And as I was looked across the riverbank, there was a bird And as it was walking across the opposite shore, it had stepped into some fishing line that was all tangled in a ball. As it walked through that ball of fishing line, you know what happened? It got itself all wrapped up. And the more that bird attempted to get out of that fishing line, the worse the situation got for it. And before I could even really figure out what was going on, another fisherman, just a few guys down, started making his way across that river to help untangle that bird. And it was kind of a struggle there, but eventually he did. I think that's a great picture of sin. We get bound up in sin, and we can't do anything about it. We can try as hard as we can, but the more we try, it's like the greater mess that we get. We need someone outside of ourselves that can come and untangle it. And this is what Jesus did when he was lifted up. He He went to the cross to die for your sins and mine, to offer grace that you could be forgiven and that you could have a relationship with the Father and you could be set free from that sin. 
the light not only exposes your sin, but Jesus is also the Savior that delivers you from that sin. As a boy, I loved the fireworks, and I particularly loved the sparklers, you know, that, that just would, would shine and, and flicker all sorts of little fire all over the place. And even to this day, I think it's really difficult to light those things with a match. But the most effective way to seem to light those is to find out who's got it, the light, and to, and to light it with that, right? And Jesus is the sparkler. He is the light. And the only way to really receive the light is to plug in to him. Many profess Jesus, but only a few possess Jesus. Many desire to be forgiven of their sins, but just a few desire to live a life absent from those sins. Professing leads to possessing. We profess Jesus, you are God. You are sinless. You have come. You've been lifted up for my sins. My sins have been placed upon you. I want you to rule my life. And by that, he enters our life. We possess him and we begin to live for him. Thirdly, the light of the world illuminates God's way. I'll take you back to John 8, verse 12, where it says, I am the light. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Upon receiving the saving grace, here's what we do. We just follow Jesus. What does it mean to know this, I am the light? What does it mean to walk in the light? Let's just make it real simple, because Jesus did. Follow Jesus. Whoever follows me just will walk in the light. Believe in the Lord Jesus. He is the Son of God. Confess your sins and follow his teaching. Secondly, we remain in his word. We saw that in verse 31. That was our our verse that was quoted here earlier in our service. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. It's not so much how little of the Bible can I read and still be identified as a disciple. Rather, it's how much of the Bible can I read to become more of a follower of Jesus. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light to my path. Is there anyone here this morning that needs guidance or wisdom in the decision? God's truth helps us with that. Thirdly, under this, as we enjoy the freedom, as the light of the world shines into our heart, he reveals the lies that we have believed. It could be sin satisfies. You deserve to be respected and have your way. No one understands you or what you're going through. You are captured by this habit, never can break free. You will always be stuck in this situation or you are alone and nobody cares. But when we are meditating on God's word, when we are in his word, when we are abiding in it, we are set free. It says here, if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. And it's not just at the moment of conversion, but as we walk through our Christian life, we see more and more of the sins that we have believed. A couple of our men and I have been working through what we call the leadership pipeline, and recently uh, we had the responsibility of making a timeline of our life where we would highlight the blessings and highlight the troubles and all the other landmarks in between. And as we were doing that, that was really helpful to me because I began to see some I'll call them sinful patterns in my life. Events that took place, some that were beyond my control and how I responded to them, 
but I saw a pattern of believing lies, lies about myself, about the circumstances. And even now that I've been a Christian for almost 30 years, I'm seeing those patterns that seem to be for the first time. So the more we are in with Jesus, the more we are in his word, the more truth is exposed and the more freedom that we experience. And then finally, we live eternally. Let me read again John 8, verse 51, that says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. That's not physical death. That's spiritual death. I think we love the light, do we not? We've, I loved how bright it was when we came in here. I think we love it when we have bright lights that are, that are shining. We love to be able to see what we are doing when we're in darkness. It can be very frustrating. But Jesus is the light. And we are exposed to the light by him, by his word. We want to be reading his word regularly. We want to be around God's people where God's word is read and taught and we're encouraged to have it as well. But let me just segue for a moment of another way that we're going to be receiving the light of God's truth in the coming days here at Highland Crest. Seventy days from today, uh, we will be having Life Action join us. Um, How many of you have never heard of Life Action? Just by a show of hand. Okay, thank you. Uh, Life Action is a ministry that that will actually come to our church. I think there's between 30 and 35. Uh, Some of those are, are little kids like children of some of the workers. But what they will do is they will come and they will help us understand God's way even more clearly. They're just going to teach us the same passages, the same truths that I think you are hearing in your Sunday school classes, hopefully from the same pulpit. But we're going to have an opportunity to have the light of truth shine into our hearts over the whole week of May 22nd to May 29th. And just that consistent teaching, consistent praying, consistent getting ready to hear what God's truth has to say to us gives us a great opportunity to draw close to God during that time. And it's not just about that time, but in the weeks, months, and years to follow. How many of you would say that you had your life changed during a a time of life action when they were here? Yeah, many hands could go up and say, "That, that changed my life. Here's a way that we can prepare for life action. As they come, they'll be doing evening services. They'll provide an opportunity to meet with our student ministry, with our children. They'll provide a family conference, a a widow, a window, women's luncheon, all sorts of opportunities during that week for us to be under God's teaching. One of the ways that we can prepare in the next 70 days is to be praying for that. In your bulletin, I think you have an insert that says, pray for revival. Would you look at that with me for a moment? A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting down with breakfast with a man named Ethan, Ethan Rocky, who kind of fills in for us with music when when Scott is gone. And Ethan uh, served with Life Action for a couple of years. And he said, Chad, we could tell when we showed up at a church in the first few days if that church had prayed in preparation for us. There were some churches that we arrived and we knew that they had prayed because they were really eager to hear what God had to say to them and they would be immediate in response to that. But he said there were other churches 
that we would go to, and it was like the messages, the same things that we were doing, it was just like it was hitting a, a, a brick wall, and, and there was just no response. In fact, either it was indifference, or in some cases it was like, why are these people even here? And so I want to bring that before you to say, would you, for the next 70 days, just take this really serious, and let's pray in preparation for life action to come. Here's, here's two different ways you can do that. One is to put this bookmark in your Bible, wherever it can be, uh, where you will see it every day, and begin to pray for those things. You'll see that there's seven days that you can be praying for different things and preparing for this Life Action Summit. To begin to confess your sins. I believe you won't need to wait 70 days for personal revival. It might even happen by Wednesday this week. Just be, just be praying for God to soften your heart and get ready to hear. The second thing that you can do, uh, church family, is every time you gather for a Bible study or Sunday school, whether that's on Sundays or Thursdays or Wednesdays or whenever you meet, could you take 10, 15 minutes and just pray for life action? The truth is most of our studies... We spend the first 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes just catching up with one another. Would you be willing to carve some time out in your study and just pray for life action? And I would say this. If my influence means anything to you, if the office of pastor means anything to you, if my relationship means anything to you, then you will take this seriously. And the reason I ask that of you is because I love you. And I believe the greatest blessing that can come to you is to have a clear conscience before God, to have a great relationship with Him and others. So that's what I'd like you to do is allow the, the light of God's truth beginning today and into that week of May 22nd through 29th to be ready for that. And here's the other thing I'm going to give you permission to do. If you have your calendar with you and you have your phone with you and, you, and your calendar is on your phone, I'm giving you permission to do it right now. <laughs> and that is to block out that whole week and just say, that's life action week. I'm going to be at Highland Crest every night that week. You can do that right now and just block it off and you say, this is important. We're not going to schedule anything else. In fact, we're going to move some stuff if we got that there. You're going to be hearing more about that in the coming days. Uh, there's going to be opportunities for you to open your home. There's going to need to be some host homes, maybe like 10 of them. If you have an extra vehicle and it runs, um, you, you would be able to leave your vehicle, and, and they're going to need some vehicles to go from host homes to, to the church. And there's just going to be all sorts of opportunities for you to participate. Uh, so stay tuned because that information is going to start coming your way on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. So just be ready for that, okay? So here's the passage. I am the light of the world. Where would you see yourself? Are you the rule follower or the rule breaker? Here's the truth. All of us need a Savior. And the Savior has come to save you from your sins. Would you receive that grace? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, this word today. We never can tire of hearing 
of Jesus' truth. He was persistent. He would not allow the comfortable just to remain there. He challenged them. Lord, I pray that we would not be like these Jewish leaders that were just so hard in their heart, that the issue was not so much just the lack of evidence. The issue was that they were unwilling to follow Jesus. Lord, I pray for you to shine the light in my heart. Even today, in the days that follow, we would prepare ourselves for personal revival, that we would experience it in the coming days. And I pray that we would be experiencing it even before life action comes. Lord, do a work in our hearts that we would prioritize our relationship with you more than ever, that there would be a a brokenness about us, there would be a humility, there would be a willingness to confess sins, the light would be shined, and things that I hadn't even thought about that I was uh, disobeying you in. My relationships with others was not right, and so I have to come and, and confess that. Lord, may the light shine in our lives. I pray that this would be a priority for us, that every day we would be praying and saying, what matters to me most is my relationship with you, God, so I confess this. I praise you. I worship you. Change our lives. Make us more like Jesus. Help us to be um, a, a greater light. Not only is Jesus the light, but you've called us to be the light. So may we walk in this light, experiencing it with others and sharing it with others. In Jesus' name, amen.